If you're just joining us, you're going to need to go back after today and figure out where we are in our series on Daniel that we're putting the tagline, Children of Revival, to, because we could walk verse by verse through the book of Daniel, and that would be a, a challenge in and of itself, and I believe God would move through that, but we're framing this series through the eyes of a bigger story, that Daniel doesn't just show up in exile in Babylon serious about resolving in his faith and staying faithful to God randomly. He is the product of a generation of people who were moved to destroy idols under the leadership of King Josiah and cause, not even knowing it, but cause a remnant of the generation to follow who would go into exile in Babylon and remain faithful to God and ultimately lead to the coming of Jesus. And we're asking the question at Auburn Community Church, what if what God is doing in our day is bigger than this moment? What if we could open our eyes to the idea that we're in a broken sinful world that is in desperate need of Jesus. But maybe the coolest thing God could do through ACC is not just grow church services or build buildings or start other locations. Maybe the amazing thing God could do is have a generation of Jesus followers witnessing these things and being transformed by what they see. And maybe they're not going to conform to the world around them. Maybe they're going to be transformed by the word within them as we, many of us, the first generation in a lot of our families, to truly be transformed from the inside out by the word of God. So this is a vision-defining series for where we're going as a church, and we're looking at the book of Daniel. And honestly, the first three weeks have been foundational, talking about the idea of being taken into exile Engaged did such a good job talking about this last week of when you're taken into exile, you're tested. Are you going to resolve to be who you truly are in your identity in Christ? Are you going to conform to the world around you? And the pressure is higher than ever on Daniel and his friends. And for some reason, they were formed so deeply that they remained faithful to God. So three weeks of kind of foundational work. I'm not going to go over that every week from now forward. We're just going to get into Daniel. And trust me, there's a lot. But you have to know that as a baseline for where we're going to be going now. I'm so excited about where we're going today. And to be real with you, I wasn't that excited. Because Daniel 1 is very memorable. Daniel 3 is very memorable. And I'm so excited to get to Daniel 3. And Daniel 6 is very memorable. If you grew up in church, you know all three of these stories. You know that Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken into exile. They remained faithful to God. That's where we've been. In chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into a fiery furnace. And it's the coolest story in the book of Daniel, in my opinion, and it's coming next Sunday. And if ever there was a Sunday where you don't need to miss church, it's next Sunday. You're like, I got plans. I'm going to watch online. Cancel your plans and be in Auburn for that moment when we talk about the fiery furnace. A couple weeks after that, we're going to talk about the really memorable one that a lot of us heard in vacation Bible school or in Sunday school growing up, Daniel and the, and the lion's den. That's an amazing story. But buried among all these memorable moments in the book of Daniel are these stories that I don't think they get as much airtime, but when you look deeper at the story God's writing through Daniel's life, and in particular Israel's history, there's some gold and some straight-up mind-blowing moments that happen in the scriptures. So I'm ready to preach Daniel 2 to you today. It's long. It's 49 verses. We're reading all of them. Now skipping. I love that excitement. It's like if I were sitting where you are, I'd be like, really? Really? We're actually going to do that? We are, but I want to frame it through this title. If I had to give a title to this talk, it's called The Mystery. The Mystery. Look at somebody next to you. Tell them it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Church is going to feel very relevant for you today if you're in a season where you're looking for an answer from God. God is a God of mystery, and more than that, I, I believe life is loaded with mysteries where God wants to reveal who he is and make sense and give wisdom to human beings who are desperately in need. So if you're in a season of uncertainty where you've got multiple options toward your future and you've just been seeking God, going, God, is it this or that? Is it him or her? Is it this direction or that direction? God, I need an answer, and it seems like it's hidden, and it seems like it's in the dark. Today's message is going to speak to you. If you've been grappling with God about, man, this happened, and I don't have a way to explain why you allowed this to happen, especially in your sovereignty, it just feels like a mystery to me, today is for you. If you've been like wondering, what in the world is the story of God all about, and everything that people are singing in here and proclaiming passionately about who God is seems like one big question mark to you, I believe this message is going to speak to you. 
God is the God who reveals mysteries, and he's going to reveal a dumbfounding one in Daniel chapter 2. I want to ask if you have your Bible at church. Hold it up. Hold it up. Every location. A few people in the lobby. Birmingham, we see you. Hold it up. Okay, here's what I really want to know today. Keep your Bible up if you were one of the crazy human beings who camped out in the 20-degree weather. I just want to know where y'all are. Can we give them a hand? Wow. Wear a mask if you walk by them. Turn with me, ho! Turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Oh, y'all, that was just so cool, but you could not pay me enough to ever do that for any sporting event. It's one thing, it was like 40, 50 degrees. It was, I just walked outside that night, and I was like, oh, somebody pray for them. Um, Daniel 2 is amazing because you would figure after Daniel chapter 1 that things would settle down a little bit. You get taken into exile, and even as I say that, please remember context. Please remember this involves your parents being murdered in all probability in front of your eyes. This involved being brainwashed, being given a new name for Daniel and his friends, being castrated like Gage talked about last week. I mean, this is, this is bad. This is the worst thing that has ever happened to you, and still, you resolve to be faithful to God. Now, you'd think you would turn the page after a story like that and go, things calm down a little bit. Things got a little bit more manageable for a little while, and God showed up, and he was faithful. But how many of you know that sometimes when you take a step of faith for the glory of God, it doesn't make things less complicated, it makes it more complicated. And sometimes the hardest times are on the back end of, man, we just went through that. What else is ahead? And you'll find out through Daniel's story that even though the beginning was tough and they remained faithful to God, the challenges that are on the way just get more and more difficult. But watch this. God gets more and more tangible. And God ends up showing up in such a powerful way. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. Go ahead and look at your Bible, y'all. And, and, and find Daniel 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Now go to the end of Daniel 2. You probably have to turn a page. That's how much we're going to read. Not all at once. I'm going to read a little bit and explain a little bit of it as we go. But we want you to know, you, you came to church today to hear from the word of God. Not from the word of Miles, but the word of God. So hopefully this holds your attention. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king. Now stop right there. If you're looking at your Bible, literally, you see a footnote in the NIV. The ESV might actually have that footnote inserted into the passage. This is something that doesn't make sense unless you're reading it in the original language, and this is such a rare moment in the scriptures. At this point in Daniel, Daniel changes languages. Daniel 1 and the beginning of Daniel 2 are written in Hebrew, and Daniel changes the language. How many of you would love to be writing in mid-sentence? Change languages. He changes the language to Aramaic at this point. It's also called the language of the Chaldeans. He switches from God's holy people, the way they talk to each other, to the common language in Babylon. And then later in Daniel, he's going to switch back to Hebrew. Daniel is doing a lot of things that are not explicitly said as he writes this. It's a beautiful literary masterpiece. And ultimately, the language shift is really the story of Israel. And I believe what God's trying to say through what Daniel did in this moment is we went from Hebrew to speaking this language, but don't worry, God's going to bring us back, and we're going to get back to where we were before, speaking the language of God's people in our homeland. But at this point, he switches to another language. By the way, just as I make that note, I know that when you're reading your Bible, if you're studying Daniel 2, you probably won't see that, and even if you do see it, you won't know what to do with it. Whenever you study a book of the Bible, I highly encourage you to Google the name of that book of the Bible, and then type Bible Project. What you will see is either a YouTube video, and these are on Right Now Media as well. What you'll see is like an 8 to 12 minute summary of that book done in such a creative way that will give you handles to actually understand. So you might be like, Miles, how did you learn that? Well, the footnote's there, but I look up Bible Project on certain books of the Bible, and it tells you. Here's how it's structured. Here's why it starts in Hebrew, switches to Aramaic, and goes back to Hebrew. Just a, a little bit on that right there, and there'll be more about that as this series goes on. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king reported to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. 
If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will... That is so obnoxiously loud. Like, it's like your phone rings in public and you're embarrassed, but then it's like, it's on 10. And um, so, I'm sorry I called you out. Go ahead and put your phone on airplane mode right now. Um, Everyone. (laughs) It just keeps going. That's amazing. They're too embarrassed to reach for it at this point. It's my fault. I promise there's grace for whomever that is. It just happened. Let's go back to verse 5. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and turn your houses into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Look up here. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He wants it interpreted as troubling him so much that he can't sleep. That tells you that he's very concerned about what this dream is going to mean for him. And he tells his wise men, his enchanters, his astrologers, I don't have time to go into who that is. That's people who watch the stars for signs. That's people who are very well read and and, and sort of instruct and counsel the king. It's people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who've been brought into the presence of the king because of just favor that they found in the eyes of the people who are supervising them. And he says, I've had a dream and I want you to tell me what it is and interpret it. And the wise men go, yeah, we'll, we'll interpret the dream. Because in this day, interpreting dreams was symbolic for the the way to read what the gods are doing in a mystical way. And they had a system for, hey, if the dream has a tree in it, this is what that means. If it has like something like something like animals in it, this is what each animal means. They had a way of reading dreams. But Nebuchadnezzar says, "Uh uh-uh, I don't just want you to tell me what my dream means. I want you to tell me what the dream was and what it means. And when he gets fired up about it, he goes, if you can't do that, you all die and your houses will become garbage dumps. But if you can tell me, I'll give you a lot of money and reward you. It's not funny because people's lives are on the line, but it's kind of funny because like, it doesn't make any difference how much money you offer. Either they know or they don't know. This is not something that someone's going to be able to conjure up and guess because he's thrown on. I don't just want you to interpret it. You can tell in Nebuchadnezzar's um, ask here, he wants to hear from God. And I don't mean like our God as Christians. I mean, he wants a mystical power that's outside of his control or these men's control to know there is someone higher than humanity who can tell me what this means. Look at verse 7. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans." This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Sort of panicking, the wise men plead with the king. This is too big of an ask. And they make the mistake of comparing King Nebuchadnezzar to previous kings and going, there's no king that we know of in the history of humanity that has ever asked something so impossible. They are imploring him. They're begging him. But that's also bold to say something like that in that moment because you're basically telling him, you compared to them look foolish. If you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible, he is known more than anything for pride. And so when his pride takes a shot at that statement, he gives the order. He's like, I'm not even thinking about it anymore. The order has been given. Take the lives of all the wise men, the enchanters. Anyone who is in my court to advise me, you're gone. Verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. How would you like to speak to the person responsible for taking your life. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Daniel is able to speak in such a way that not just earns him a little more time, but actually prods the commander to agree with him and go with him on this so that he, look at this, so that he might interpret the dream for him. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? 
Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells within him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Daniel runs back to his room, grabs his friends. Who are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but those are their Hebrew names. And he says, we're going to beg God for the mercy of knowing what this dream is and what it means. And if he doesn't give it, we die. In an all-night prayer session, people like to read this and think, oh, Daniel's so at peace. He went to sleep, and he had a dream, and God gave it to him. No, I don't think he was sleeping at all. Sometimes we read the stories of the Bible disconnected from reality. It doesn't say Daniel went to sleep. It just says in the night he had a vision. I think in the night, while they're praying all night, knowing that if God doesn't come through, it's their last night on planet Earth, because if that's the situation you're in, you don't go to sleep and sleep like a baby. You're up all night going, God, please, please, right now, right now, please do something. And in a vision, he receives the interpretation. But I want you to notice, as soon as he receives the dream and the interpretation, he doesn't run out of the room going, I got it, don't kill me. He runs to praise God, and he says, you are the one who reveals deep and hidden things, and you are the one who's worthy of glory and honor and praise in this moment. One of the major themes of Daniel is his humility and his total focus on God. In fact, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, I believe, are contrasted against one another. The humility to receive something amazing from God and not make it about himself. And you'll see more of that in a second. Verse 24. Then Daniel went to Ariot, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Ariot took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man from among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Watch this. Verse 27. Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that passed through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries has showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Daniel can't even give the answers he's been given without first giving glory to God in the presence of a king who thinks he's a god. And then the interpretation goes like this, verse 31, your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands, it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, the third kingdom, one of bronze, which will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. 
And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. I promise I'm going to make all this make sense. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all the wise men. Look at this. I love this ending. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. That's a small detail, but I love not only does Daniel give glory to God instead of glory to himself, when God promotes Daniel, Daniel uses his promotion to make sure he cares about the guys who are his guys. I love that. That's a lot of scripture, and that's a lot to talk about. I want you to know that in Daniel, we are going to hit on the theme of prophecy, visions about the future, the end times, because Daniel will go there over and over again. In fact, Daniel and Revelation are looked at hand in hand when people want to talk about the end times. But even as we look at a vision like this, and especially as we get further on in Daniel, I need you to not get weird on me. Too many people, when they read about visions of the future, they like to get a map out and go, okay, here's when Jesus is coming back because here's what's happened in the White House and here's what's happening over here and you got this happening in Rome and da da da. And, and we like to read all these signs and go, so Jesus is coming back in 2030. We know for sure. When it's like literally God said, you don't know the day or the hour. You don't, you're not supposed to know. The idea of the prophetic and especially end times visions or future visions is three words, and this is the whole theme of the book of Daniel. Hope motivates faithfulness. Hope motivates faithfulness. The idea is that even though we live as the people of God in a kingdom ruled by a king that is taking our lives and taking our stuff, there is another king on the throne, and this kingdom will endure forever. When you read the book of Revelation, I don't believe you're supposed to get lost in the dragon, and then this happened, and then all this stuff happened up and down. It's cool to read, and it's cool to study, but the whole idea of Revelation is this. Jesus is coming back for sure, but not yet, so remain faithful. And it just goes up and down. It's like the seals are being broken. There, there's a lamb on the throne. He's coming back. But then it's like delayed and it's taking time and there's a battle and there's all these things happening. What the prophetic visions of the future are intended to make the church do is go, it's for sure going to happen. But until it does, I'm called to remain faithful. Hope motivates faithfulness. Now let's talk about this dream. Because this dream is not about the end times. It's not about when Jesus comes back to take his bride. This dream is about when Jesus comes as a baby to become the sacrificial savior of the world. Daniel says, your dream had a statue in it. Statue had a head of gold, arms of silver, chest, belly, thighs of bronze, and then legs of iron that's mixed with clay. I'll tell you what this dream means. This is so brilliant. He said, there's going to be several kingdoms. You're the head of gold. God's put you in charge of everything. But after you, there's another kingdom coming. It's not going to be as big as yours. That's the kingdom of silver, the arms. But then there's one that's going to take over the whole earth. That's bronze. But then there's one that's going to take over that kingdom. And it'll be so big that it'll be kind of divided against itself. And in the days of those kings, God will establish his kingdom on the earth that is like a rock coming out. Watch this. It comes out of the statue and then hits the statue, takes the place of a statue, and spreads over the whole earth. Pay attention. After King Nebuchadnezzar reigns in Babylon, there's another kingdom that comes and takes over. It's the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, they will come before Daniel even dies, and Daniel will serve in that king's court. So you got Babylon, the head of gold. 
You got Persia, the arms of silver, and then what happens? Just know your history, and I love history, so I love talking about this. There's a kingdom that will rule the whole earth. This is the first time in history. Who's that? Greece, Alexander the Great. Spreads to the whole earth, but like as soon as that one spreads, another kingdom comes and takes over. The legs of iron and clay. Who's that? Rome. And in the days of those kings, Daniel, you don't know this, but they're not going to be called kings. They're going to be called Caesars. In the days of those kings, God will establish his kingdom. And there will be a Jewish carpenter who brings a message. What's Jesus' message? I've come to start a new religion where people will gather on Sundays and take communion and then forget about everything we talked about during the week. No, 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 no. When he shows up, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. There's a whole new humanity here. And where does that kingdom come from? It comes out of all of those civilizations, just like the people of God were in all of those. But then it becomes a rock that destroys them and a mountain that spreads. For 2,000 years, we have lived in the era of the kingdom of God spreading to the ends of the earth, and we're still living in those days right now. This is what makes it awesome to be a Christian in 2022. And I know the world's a scary, broken place. But at the same time, the vision is sure. This kingdom will spread to the ends of the earth. Jesus will return again, not as a humble baby, but as a conquering king to take us to be with him forever. And we will reign on the earth. Oh, if you're not a Christian today, please bow before the God of the universe and give your life to Jesus. This is why you have breath. This is why we are here. This is not a cool story about some prophetic stuff. This is supposed to open our eyes to the fact that God's always doing more in a moment than what we see. And the revealer of mysteries ends up showing the most proud king in the world something he never would have known. And what does that king do? He bows before Daniel and goes, your God is the God who reveals mystery. Suddenly pride turns to humility in the sight of all God has done. Now, We've got to talk about how to read Daniel chapter 2 and what we're supposed to get out of it, because all that's cool. And I love talking about the historical accuracy of this and how it plays out in real time as you read your Bible. That Daniel said this hundreds of years before any of this even happened, and it came to pass just as his word went forth. It's amazing. But I don't think the message for us is just to read about, oh, cool, Daniel prophesied that, and then it came true. Awesome. I think we're supposed to read Daniel chapter 2 and learn something about Daniel's response in the middle of such a pressing time and emulate it as Jesus followers who are reading the Bible and seeing the kingdom of God as the thread that goes from beginning to end. And the way to do that in the book of Daniel is to understand a Hebrew term that is a method of literature in the Old Testament that if you're not aware of, and I know 99% of you probably are not aware of this, but we have to go to school for a couple of minutes at church. Because for you to understand a lot of your Old Testament, you need to know this word. We'll put it on the screen. It's the word chiasm. Somebody say chiasm. We hear you in Birmingham. If you don't know what that word is, a lot of the Old Testament isn't going to make sense to you. And I'm not saying that to judge you. I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. Until a couple of years ago, I didn't know what this word meant. I learned it in a podcast called the Bema Discipleship Podcast. That's B-E-M-A. If you're like, really going deep in the scriptures and you want to see a lot of the Jewish meaning and things that rabbis know and have the Old Testament in particular come alive in a way that it never has before, I highly recommend it. It's called the Bema Discipleship Podcast with Marty Solomon. Phenomenal resource. But his study of Jewish rabbis allows him to speak to a Western mind about Eastern realities. And in an Eastern mind, the way the Old Testament is contrived is loaded with these things called chiasms. Chiasms are literary poems that organize statements in a way that the meaning of what's being presented is buried within the structure. Here's what I mean. A chiasm is said in such a way that A, B, and C, let's put this on the screen, lead to B and A. This is going to make sense. When events are presented in this particular order, or it could be A, B, C, C, B, A. It could be A, B, C, D, E, F, all the way to infinity, and then back to A. But the idea is that you present information in a way that what's said at the beginning is aligned with what's said at the end. And then what's said after that is aligned with something that's said before it. And Jewish minds have a way of reading the Old Testament and some of the organization of the poems to go, oh, okay, that goes with that, and that goes with that. And so the purpose that the author wants me to discover is in the middle. Because this is so complicated for us in the West, and by West, I mean like Western side of the map, we struggle 
Because our way of learning things is just by saying them. Somebody makes a claim, and then they put supporting evidence, and we decide whether or not we're going to go with that. In an Eastern mind, that's not how they think. They think in terms of discovery. They want to have to dig and wrestle and get to the bottom of something to truly see the gold of going, wow, that's where truth really lies. They think in word pictures, not just, here's my point, here's my supporting evidence, do you agree with me? Which I actually think is really beautiful, but it's a hard way to think. There's another way of going about writing a chiasm. We'll put this up on the screen because it doesn't have to be like an arrow. In fact, a lot of the chiasms of the Bible are not arrows. They're actually hourglasses that go down and then back up in the opposite direction. It's crazy. But another way of going about it is to present four points and then four points in that exact same order over and over again. But it doesn't have to be four. It could be three. It could be seven. It could be 10. These are organized in ways that causes you to read it and have to read it again and look for it and go, oh, wow, that goes with that. And it's like a puzzle that you are putting together. But once again, the purpose is to discover what's in the middle. Now, if you're here and your brain's about to explode, welcome to the club. But listen, I'm going to make this so simple and give you an example that you're all familiar with. Genesis chapter one, the creation account is a chiasm. And that's why, or actually the word is chiasmus. And you can Google this later. You're not, your pastor's not saying something crazy that you've never heard before. I promise this is legit. When you read Genesis 1, isn't it a little disappointing when you're trying to read it like a scientific lab report of how the world was created? And then brilliant scientists look at our creation account and they go, really? This is how the beginning happened. This is the order that it happened. God created the world in six days. And what you don't understand is that this is so blatantly a literary poem that has buried meaning. It's so easy to discover. The rhythm of each day. Think about then on this day, God created this and saw that it was good. And you feel the rhythm even as you read it of like, yep, and then that, and then that, and then that. But even the content of it. Have you ever noticed in the creation account that God doesn't really create on day one, two, and three? He kind of separates. And then on days four, five, and six, he places. It's like he separates and then gives structure. He gives form and then puts. What does he do? He does it in order. Day one, what's created? Let there be light. Separates the light from day. What does he create on day four? Sun, moon, stars. Wait, how was there light before there was sun? How was it? That'll blow your mind in and of itself. It's like, how does that work? It's because the way this is constructed, God's not trying to get us to read a scientific lab report and go, oh, okay, this is the order that it happened. This is how it all went down. He's trying to get us to understand this is a story about the meaning of creation. Now, we can get into all the debates of was it six literal days or was it 6,000 years? Or That's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to show you structure. He creates that on day one. What? Wait a minute. Let's think about this for a second. What does God create on day two? Separate sky from waters. What happens on day five? Birds and fish. What does he create on day six? Land. Plants. Or sorry, sorry, on day three. Land and plants. What does he create on day six? Humans, animals, to fill it. Separates it and fills it. Genesis chapter one is six days that fold together with almost perfection. And the only thing that stands out in one through six is the creation of humanity. Where God goes into a lot more detail about that. But if you take the chiasm of ABCD, ABCD, and you look for the midpoint in Genesis 1, the midpoint is a phrase called sacred times and seasons. And it's the same word that's used for Sabbath on day seven. So what's buried in the creation account in the middle of the chiasm is, look at this, pay attention to this word. And what in the creation account stands out like a sore thumb? Sabbath. Because you got six days that are totally symmetrical, and then this day of nothing. What is God trying to say that's buried in the creation account? He's trying to say, I made the world as good, and even when I'm doing nothing, it's good. And watch this. Even when you're doing nothing, you're good. God was saying from the beginning, you are my people made in my image, and you can rest why would that need to be the buried meaning? Because when was Genesis 1 contrived? During Moses' time leading the people of God out of Egypt, out of a system where they were entirely valued based on the bricks that they produced for the Egyptians. Genesis 1 was God's message to his people. You don't have to work to have value. You have value simply because you are made by me. Isn't this fun? No? Okay. I thought it was. Chiasms are all over the Bible. Now, get ready for your brain to just get rocked. Daniel 2 is a chiasm, 
within the fact that the whole book of Daniel is actually a chiasm. And we're going to go deeper into this. Daniel designs his writing in such a way where the midpoint is actually something in Daniel chapter 7, which is the vision of Jesus in heaven. It's the center of the entire thing. But even within his chiasm, he has multiple different chiasms happening at one time. Super chiasm. It's not what they're called. I called it that. But this one is not as complicated to read as the creation account. This one's pretty blatantly clear as you are reading it in passing. But once again, for the Jewish mind, the purpose is not to read it in passing and go, I had a quiet time. Did God speak to me? It's to dig into it, to look deeply into it. What do you see? You see this structure. Put the next slide on the screen. Essentially, Daniel chapter 2 happens in such a way where you're in the throne room of the king who's troubled by his dream. He gives an order, which leads to the palace where Daniel talks to Arioch, Arioch. Daniel goes to his room to pray with his friends, comes back to the palace with word that he has the dream and the interpretation, and then goes back to the throne room with it. So if you're reading this and you discover that that is the chiasm, that is the structure of Daniel 2, where are you supposed to look for meaning? The middle, the middle, right there, Daniel's room. And so the question for Daniel 2 is not, oh, this is so cool. How does it apply to history? The, Daniel is, or the question is, what happens in Daniel's room? that I'm supposed to learn from? What am I supposed to see? And that's what we're going to look at. Daniel chapter 2, verse 17. Look at this. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. I love that Daniel's reaction was not to blame God, it was to go to God. When Daniel gets word, we're about to die, his reaction isn't, how could God let this happen? Literally, our parents are dead, we got taken from our homes, we're in another city, and we stayed faithful to God, and the result is we're going to die on the whim and frustration of a crazy lunatic who's on the throne. No, Daniel's reaction isn't to use so the sovereignty of God as a weapon against God. It's to respond to the sovereignty of God in a way that calls on him to be the God he's revealed to be in the scriptures. Some of you guys know so much about God that you use his knowledge over your life and over the universe as a reason to disengage from him. God, you're in control and my life has this mystery to it. And if you're in control and you're the one who knows these hidden things and you have all this omnipotence, you have all this power, you have all this knowledge, why don't you show me? And it's like we get in this arm wrestling match with God. But for Daniel, God's sovereignty wasn't something to be approached arrogantly as a reason to think you're above God. God's sovereignty was a reason to submit in humility and go, God, you're the one in control and you don't owe me anything but we want to stay on this planet and we want to live and we want a chance. And so the only way we can do this is to beg you. You're the God who sees hidden things and God reveals and God moves. When you're in the mystery, the question of God revealing himself to you is a question of whether or not your life is in a posture of pride or humility. And you'll never really know how much pride you're holding on to until you get word that everything went wrong. And if your temptation, I'm not saying it's bad to be real with God, but if your temptation most of the time when things don't go the way you plan is to look at God in a threatening kind of like, you're the only one not doing your job, your heart has crossed over into a position where not only is the mystery going to be far from you, the mystery of who God is is going to be disconnected from you because that wasn't your pursuit anyway. Your pursuit was to control him and get what you wanted. But Daniel goes, we're going to plead, we're going to beg God to come through. And he does. Now listen to the song that comes from his secret place. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and to the discerning. Here it is. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Look at the middle. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, 
and light dwells with him. How beautiful is it? I know this is a weird sermon, guys. How beautiful is it that when we're learning about how the purpose of studying the scriptures is discovery, that you're supposed to dig and God reveals what's hidden? How beautiful is it that the story is about a God who reveals mysteries, but watch this, a God who does so when he is earnestly sought out. See, God wants you to seek him, but he's not playing hide and seek. And the reason why we get so frustrated on this cycle of getting a circumstance that we can't control and then going to God and going, God, please reveal this. God, please reveal yourself. God, please tell me something. Is because we think God's playing hide and seek. We think he's over here trying to keep something from us or keep himself from us, and then we got to turn over everything and figure out, okay, there you are. Wow, I discovered this. But here's the reality. God wants you to seek him. But there's a huge difference in finding something that's being hidden and discovering something that was there all along. And when you discover something about the mystery of God, it's not that God goes, here I am, I was hiding. It's that God goes, here it is. This was what was waiting for you if you would earnestly seek me. And so when you're in the mystery, welcome to the ultimate invitation to seek after God. Welcome to an opportunity to step into the more of God. And I just know the vast majority of us, including me, are in the frustrating pattern of only really seeking the heart of God when there's an emergency that mandates it. But when we're not in that desperation, when our lives are not on the line, when there's not a cancer diagnosis, when there's not a divorce pending, when there's not something urgent, we stay in this land of not earnestly seeking God because it's not God we truly want. It's God's power that we want to use and his revelation that we want to know. But when you go, no, 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 the purpose isn't finding something that's hidden. It's discovering what's been there for me to reveal, be revealed all along. You live in the era of the kingdom of God, the mountain that has taken over the whole earth. Jesus has made God visible taken things invisible and make it plain for you. He's given you the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. You have an opportunity like no other time in human history to know God and to step into the more of God confidently with every single step of your life. So whatever time I have left, I got two things for you before you go today. And it's so simple. We're going to learn how to live in the mystery. Is this helping anybody? It's, 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 it's helping me. Number one is this. I want you to learn, this is straight from Daniel, to pursue Obeying God's revealed ways over figuring out God's concealed will. Pursue obeying God's revealed ways over figuring out God's concealed will. Notice what Daniel does and doesn't do. In the book of Daniel, when a miracle happens, Daniel and his friends only do what they are capable of doing. They are never called to be God. They are never called to be the ones who figure out the dream and its meaning. They're never called to overcome the flames of the fiery furnace. They're never called to shut the mouths of lions. They are called to obey God. And like Charles Stanley says, obey God and leave the consequences up to him. Your job isn't to figure out God's concealed will. Your job is to obey God's revealed ways. And watch this. That will be the way that God reveals what's concealed. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will what? Make your path straight. Or, like we said at prayer yesterday, direct your paths. In what context does God make clear what seems hidden? The context of you acknowledging and submitting to his ways. Don't ask God to reveal what's hidden when you're disobeying what's blatant and clear. So Daniel goes, well, we, we don't really have any other option in this situation. The only thing we can do is beg God to come through. The way to live a supernatural life is to embrace how supernormal you are. And all God has called you to work with is what he's revealed. And when you're obeying his ways and you're present in the moment to what he's called you to today, God will reveal his concealed will. I've been reading through the prayer requests. We've had a prayer wall. It's in that corner right now. And every day people are putting up prayer requests. Do you know the most common word on those cards is the word clarity? Just broke up with somebody. I want clarity that I made the right decision. Headed toward the future. Want clarity about this. Want clarity from God about losing a parent. Want clarity from God about what I should do next in my kid's life. Clarity, 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 clarity. We're all asking God for something similar, it feels like. But in reality, I don't believe God's up there going, just show it to you when I see a little more effort. He's going, work with what I have revealed. And when you obey what I have revealed through my ways, I'll show you my will. And if you're submitted to the ways of God, you will always be in the will of God. 
It is more about acknowledging and submitting to his ways right where you are than it is about figuring out what you should do, where you will go, or why this happened there and then. And I discovered this as a freshman in college. I was 19 years old, and I wanted to be anywhere in the world other than at Kennesaw State University, where I went. Love that school. Hootie who? We're the fighting owls. Um, <laughs> and I was the quarterback for the football team. We didn't have one at the time, but it was flagged. Um, <laughs> I loved it. Loved Kennesaw State. But I was, I was, I was so miserable as a freshman. And, and you know, a lot of you know that journey. It's like you get to a new place and your whole identity is turned upside down. You're going, how does this work? And I've gone through a breakup. I'm like, okay. In Jeremiah 29, which is a passage about Israel being in exile, not a passage about health, wealth, and prosperity and live your best life now. <laughs> Jeremiah 29 spoke to me because I discovered that everybody's favorite verse about God giving you a hope and a future is in the context of Israel being exiled and Jeremiah telling the people, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you will prosper. What does that mean? It means when Israel with Daniel got to Babylon, they believed, okay, this is terrible, but God's going to bring us back. Like, it could be tomorrow. It could be next week. And Jeremiah's like, uh-uh, you're staying 70 years. You're staying a full generation. Build houses. Be where you are. But the way to get to Jeremiah 29, 11 is Jeremiah 29, 7, which is, if you'll be faithful where your feet are right now, God will make you fruitful where your feet are going in the future. But you got to work with, I'm right here. I'm right now. I can't see that. And I can't fast forward to there. And God goes, you wanting to get there is a good thing, but the pathway to get there is being who I want you to be right here and right now. So maybe the arm wrestling match for answers from God is really about not you winning the match or him winning the match, but you surrendering and going, God, it's not about me getting you to show me what I want to see. It's about me coming to understand that you've already shown me enough for now. And if I want to see more, I'll just ask and trust you. Daniel 2 is so simple. When you want to know something from God, ask what a mind-blowing sermon. James, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. If you serve in ACC Kids, that's one of their songs. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Ask God, ask God. I'm watching. I'm raising up children of revival. It's not enough for them to do it over there. I got to watch it on Monday morning because I can't be over there on Sundays. And I just sang. Um, this wasn't supposed to get weird. What if the memorable thing of this was next time I need something from God, I'll just ask, but I won't make my pursuit of him waiting on his answer to my question. I'll make my pursuit of him knowing him. And that's number two. Number two, and we're done. Seek to know God over seeking to find God. This is different. Finding God, I think, is... Uh, well-intended, but it's, it's bad language because God is never hiding. He never needs to be found. He needs to be sought. And when you seek him, you discover what was there all along. And our tendency is to only find God when we need him instead of know God every day. As we read through Daniel, you'll find out that praying and asking God for mercy wasn't their emergency battle plan. It wasn't like, okay, all else has failed. Let's pray. This is what these guys did every day. When you read Daniel 6, you find out he had a three times a day custom of opening his window toward Jerusalem and praying to the God of heaven. I love Daniel 6. It says, they found Daniel praying to the God of heaven, asking God for help. Sometimes the best prayers are one word prayers, and it's just help. Help me. But the problem is we believe when something terrible happens that we will rise to the level of our circumstance Reality tells us you, you don't rise to the level of your circumstance. You fall to the level of your habits. If you haven't made a habit of earnestly pursuing God, don't be surprised when the storm comes and God feels a million miles away because you weren't doing that in the secret place when everything was status quo. And I'm not saying when things go bad, yes, we seek God with a level of desperation and, and urgency like no other time. There's no way to get around that. But the I think the vast majority of our church only genuinely, wholeheartedly seeks the heart of God when something horrible happens or something uncertain is on the horizon. God shows up with the miraculous when you're faithful in the mundane. And the mundane is every day we go to God for help. What I needed God for help with yesterday of just helping somebody on the side, it's different than today. I need him to help me and make sure I don't die tomorrow. 
Yeah, the prayer sounds different. Yeah, the emotions are different. But the truth is the same. If knowing God is the focus of your life, you'll pursue that even when things get hard and things are uncertain. Here's what 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9 says. This is a verse during King Asa's life, and I love this. sums up the whole message today. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I love that. We think we're seeking God. What if God's the one seeking? What if God's the one searching for an opportunity to reveal more of who he is to people whose what? Whose hearts are fully committed to him. I want stories at ACC that are as miraculous as the book of Daniel. I do. I want them in my own life. I want them for your family. I want them for your future. But until we get to that place where it's not a feeling that we get during a gathering, but it's like a daily, God, my heart is so committed to you. I have disciplined my life to revolve around pursuing you and knowing you. We're not going to step into the more of God. ACC, point blank, you can have as much of God as you are willing to make room for. Is your heart fully submitted to Jesus today? And if there's a part of him that you don't know or a part of your life that you want answers about or something bearing down on you today, maybe for the first time you let the words get out of your mouth, God help me, God answer me. God, I've been burying all these prayers in my mind and in my soul. And scripture says in Psalms that when I kept quiet, my bones wasted away. But when I confessed my sin, when I said out loud my need, God brought healing. And what does David say right after that? He says, then you will make me instruct sinners in your way. The only reason why I can instruct you today as a sinner is when I get consistent enough to say out loud to God, God, I don't have this figured out and I need you so bad. I can't make you build that into your daily life, but I can beg you to see there's a God who reveals mysteries, who's seeking an opportunity to do more than you're making room for him to do. So let's make the space right now and let's sing to a God who is light and makes the darkness tremble. Will you stand up all over this place? Will you stand up if you're joining us at another location? I wanna pray and let's ask God to seal and cement this message in our souls. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray. If there's anyone listening to my voice right now who has never said out loud that they need you, they've never called on your name, they've never said yes to a relationship with Jesus, give them the boldness and faith to just say yes right now. Say I'm in. Jesus, I give you my life. I believe you died. I believe you rose. I believe you're coming again. I want to be a part of your kingdom. I'll never be the same. God, I pray for scores of us in light of this word who there's some real mysteries to life and there's the darkness of the unseen, but we want to see you and we don't believe that you're hiding today. We believe you've made yourself so available and so accessible. God, would you reveal more of who you are? Would you allow these moments to be more than sermons and songs? We want to discover and be on a journey of knowing more and more of you until we see you face to face. We love you, Jesus. We sing to you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.